0: This uh, talk is, and I'm glad I don't see any children here, because this is a a very serious topic we're gonna be talking about today, and it's for an adult and mature audience, but it's a serious topic that, that needs exploration and discussion, and it's how to recover from sexual abuse. We're gonna look at the problem of sexual abuse, what are the consequences to the individuals who have been exploited and abused, and then what interventions can we recommend or bring to bear that can bring healing? The problem, one out of every three girls will be sexually assaulted by the time they're age 18. Is that even from, from one out of seven children are abused in some fashion by the time they're age 18. How many do you know? And can we afford to continue to ignore it? So if you look in a church audience of 100, 200, 300 people, you can anticipate 20, 30% of the women have been exploited at some time or assaulted at some time in their life. But what about in Christian homes? Certainly certainly in Christian homes, this must just be kind of the general public, but if it was a Christian homes, then, then we could certainly have different numbers, right? Well, No the rate of childhood physical and sexual abuse is no different in Christian homes than non-Christian homes. And that should give every Christian serious pause. And I can tell you why that is. I'm not going to go to a long thing on why that is right now because we want to get into the meat of this subject, but I'll tell you why that is. Because Christianity accepted more than a thousand years ago, a lie about what the problem of sin is. And if your diagnosis is wrong, then your treatment is wrong. And Christianity accepts the view that God's law functions like human law, system of rules. Therefore, sin is legal problem, rule breaking. The punishment for sin is inflicted by the ruling authority. Therefore, the solution is to get somebody to do something in a legal mechanistic way to pay a penalty so that you won't have to pay the penalty. And then you get legal pardon put your, in, your, in your book in heaven. And so diagnosis, legal standing, solution, legal adjustment. Hearts and minds aren't being changed by that. Sin in the character isn't being removed. Fear and selfishness isn't being eradicated. Love isn't being put in. And thus, Christian homes function no different. They just feel that they have been pardoned from their wickedness and sin while they continue to live in their wickedness and sin. That's the problem. The true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when you actually experience an encounter with Jesus, you get a new heart and right spirit. And you become a person who is transformed in the inner inner man that you become a protector of others, not an exploiter of others. This uh, graph shows different types of sexual exploitation and when they peak. First upper graph is... Forcible rape, and that peaks around age 15. Is that what that says? It's hard for me to see from here, age 15. Yeah, and uh, the next is forcible sodomy. Peaks at the age of four. Uh, This is sexual assault with an object. Again, peaking at around the age four, but there's a second peak around age 15. And then forcible fondling, and you can see that uh, peaks all before age 20. And these are the types of exploitation um, in showing you how early children, and you can understand four-year-old, five-year-old, they have no capacity to protect themselves. Now, what is sexual abuse? And I'm just taking a moment to help you understand differentially. Not everything that is legally defined as sexual abuse is equally damaging to those who've been abused. For instance, frauderism. Frauderism is sexual arousal by rubbing or bumping into somebody without their knowledge, like on an elevator or a crowded subway, and being sexually gratified by that. That's exploiting somebody as a sexual object, but that person may be in a crowded, never even know that that happened to them. Or voyeurism, uh, pe- peeping Tom. Viewing somebody in the the locker room, classic, uh, peeking in them when they're getting a shower and being sexually gratified by your peeping, Uh, that is illegal, that's sexual exploitation. But any of us could have been a victim of voyeur and have no knowledge of it, and and are we damaged by that? When does the damage occur? By the actual act, the legal act, the legal violation? Or would a damage happen when we become aware? of that violation. And so what causes the damage is not always the event itself, but it's the understanding and the interpretation of the event, the meaning, the way we experience and internalize it. You know, One person being beaten with a whip may actually enjoy it. Another person may be traumatized by it. This is true for any type of exploitation. If your home got broken into one night while you were asleep and a, and a prowler uh, snuck into your bedroom while you were asleep in your bed and sneaks over next to uh, your, uh, your uh, bed and, off and, t- and steals your watch or steals something from your home, but you never wake up and they, and they leave. And whatever it is they stole, you didn't really notice. Uh, it was something that maybe you hadn't used in a while. And then six months later, you happen to be going through a security video and you see on a video this person sneaking next to your bed while you're asleep. When does the trauma happen? Okay, it's not actually always the event. It's your internalization, awareness, understanding of the event. And so why is this important? What if you discover a child or an adult has been a victim, has been um, molested, been exploited, uh, been abused in some way? first assess that individual's knowledge, understanding and awareness. A child being bounced on the lap of some person playing a game but that person is frauderism and they're actually using the child for sexual gratification but everybody's in their clothes but you are able to identify what's going on and so you put a stop to it and then you call out Uncle Joe and you call in the police and have Uncle Joe arrested but the child was just playing a game. What harms the child, the bouncing on the lap or all of the psychological treatment you put them through for the next 10 years because they're a sexual abuse victim? That is the less common problem, but I've seen it happen. It is an occasional problem. Most of the time though, the abuse is known, understood, harmful, injurious, painful, and so what about those abuse when it's clear, known, and experienced a parent who beats their child or molests them? What happens? What's the damage? What's the problem? In order to understand this, I'm gonna walk you through a couple of brain circuits, and then we're gonna walk through the consequences when these circuits are out of balance and we're gonna help you understand why uh, childhood exploitation and abuse uh, damages not only just mental health but physical health. So I use the metaphor, and some of you may have heard this, of a fire alarm in a school. You know, the little red box on a wall, you pull, break the piece of glass it off the alarm. In our brain, that's analogous to our amygdala. That's your alarm in your brain. Now, if somebody pulls that alarm at the school and sets off the alarm, the job there is not only to alert people in the building, but to alert the 911 operator. And in our brain, the 911 operator is your hypothalamus connected to your pituitary gland. Okay. Now, the job of the 911 operator sitting there suddenly, boom, up on their screen, fire to school, fire to school, what's the job of the 911 operator? What are they supposed to do? Send in or dispatch emergency um, services. And so, when your alarm fires, it alerts your 911 operator, your hypothalamus, connected to your pituitary gland, calls in emergency responders from your adrenal glands, adrenaline, glucocorticoids, your stress hormones, This is your hypothalamic H, pituitary P, adrenal axis. H-P-A, hypothalamic pituitary axis. This is your stress circuit firing. This is how your body reacts to stress. Now, when the emergency responders arrive at the scene of the fire, there's a fire chief, assesses how big the blaze is, looks around, how many responders we have, calls back to the 911 operator, says, hey, Even though that alarm is still on your board, we've got enough, you don't need to send anymore. In our brain, hippocampal neurons have glucocorticoid receptors. They register the rise of those stress hormones. When they saturate enough of them, they will signal back to the hypothalamus and say, hey, even though the amygdala is still firing, we've got enough, you don't need to call anymore. And at the school, there is an administrator, a principal, who assesses whether this is a real fire, some kid's playing a prank and that would be your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the part behind you for where you reason and think. So how this works in normal everyday life is maybe one afternoon you're walking in a park and you step forward in the grass and out of the corner of your eye you see something black and slithery down by your feet. Does your alarm fire? Alert your 911 operator? calls in emergency responders, your heart rate picks up, your blood pressure picks up, blood is being shunted out of your digestive organs into your muscles, you are already running three steps away, screaming when your prefrontal cortex catches up and goes, it's just a rubber hose. (laughs) I just taught you a very important brain circuit. One of the jobs of your higher cortex is to assess potential threats or stressors and when appropriate, turn the alarm off. Many people with chronic mental health problems have difficulty turning off their alarm. They're constantly worried, constantly stressed. Trauma victims have impairments in their ability to calm or turn off their alarm. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Let's talk about the salience network. Salience means relevance or significance. This is a network as sensory information comes into your brain, sight, sound, touch and so forth, as it comes into your brain, it passes through the red section there, which is the thalamus on its way to its ultimate cortical destination. As it passes through the thalamus, if it's a potential important piece of sensory information, either a threat to you or very rewarding to you, your amygdala will tag it either as a threat or something to pay special attention to and shoot that information right up to your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex for you to deal with it other sensory information is ignored. So if you listen carefully, you can hear an air conditioning system blowing in here right now. Can you hear that? Yeah, I can hear it. Can you all hear it? Yeah, I see your head's nodding. That air conditioning system has been blowing since I've been talking. Sound waves have been traveling through the atmosphere, hitting your tympanic membrane, activating your acoustic neuron, and going through your Salience network. And your salience network said irrelevant, ignore it, and you didn't even notice it until I pointed it out, but it was automatic for you doing it, just tuning it out because that was not important sensory information for you to know and be aware of. What would happen if you smelled smoke right now like the building was on fire smoke? Would your salience network let you ignore that? No, pay attention. So imagine your home, Cooking on your stove, you've got a cast iron skillet, you've got the gas on, Uh, you're on a telephone talking with a friend or a little distracted watching a television program, and with a little distraction, you reach out and your hand touches the hot iron skillet. Now, what's gonna happen? Instantly, there will be a signal, a pain signal that goes up the pain pathways through the spinothalamic, that's the red area, thalamic pathway, and as it hits the thalamus, instantly your alarm circuit, amygdala, will fire, and say, oh, that's potential danger, you're being hurt, that's, that's bad. And, 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 and it will instantly shoot that signal right up to your prefrontal cortex, pay attention, pay attention, potential threat. And I promise you, if you're doing this, no matter where your attention was, (laughs) it will not stay there. Your attention will be irresistibly drawn to the hand, okay? Even before you're fully thinking about it, you're pulling back reflexively and you're drawing, and then what happens? Oh, I just burned myself, prefrontal cortex, plan, ice in an oven mitt, that's my plan. Ice, cool it down, put an oven mitt on, now when you reach back out to grab that skillet with an oven mitt on, your amygdala is off, you've turned off the alarm, you've addressed the threat, okay? But sometimes the salience network becomes disrupted. If it becomes disrupted, then that energy, that signal does not get processed in your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Where does it go? It goes into your orbital cortex. That's the part of the brain, and it gets disrupted at the anterior cingulate cortex. And that's where, remember, our seat of decision-making we talked about earlier, where you make, I choose this, I choose to do that. So if we, are, if we disrupt our, our salience network and we don't process it here, that emergency signal, that stress goes somewhere. It goes into your orbital cortex. Now, what's the normal job of your orbital cortex? Normal job is to give you a conviction of wrongdoing and redirect you away from doing inappropriate things. So if you were to try to stand up in this room right now and take your clothes off in front of the rest of us, your orbital cortex will start firing like crazy. Don't do it, don't do it. Aren't you glad you've got an orbital cortex? <laughs> and so are the rest of us, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what happens then, when the orbital cortex, when the salience network is disrupted, then this energy gets into the orbital cortex, you get inviction or of wrongdoing, so you start experiencing inadequacy, guilt, like you're not good enough, and that causes you more stress and you get negative ruminating loops going. Any- you know anybody with negative ruminating loops? that just stress and worry and stress and worry and loop, Okay, most likely you've got a disrupted salience network. Now what happens and what disrupts the salience network? Denial or believing lies, unresolved guilt, grudge holding and resentment. All of these will disrupt the salience network and unresolved trauma contributes to all three of these. And so people that are trauma victims, particularly childhood trauma victims will have frequently disrupted salience networks, lots of negative ruminating loops that are often inaccurate and grossly distorted that causes constant stress and fear and distrust. I want you to imagine for a moment that you believe that any moment somebody could walk in this room and beat you severely or rape you. It could happen any second, you're sure of it. And you've gotta take your final exams at university. Do you think your exam scores could be affected by that? and you have a developed prefrontal cortex. Imagine a child growing up in a home in which any moment daddy or granddaddy or mom could beat them severely or come in and exploit them, molest them, or rape them, and they live in that environment day in, day out. Do you think it can alter the development of their brain? It does. Overdeveloped Remember we talked about in our lecture this morning, law of exertion. If you exercise something, it gets larger, it gets stronger. So constant fear, constant apprehension, constant worry, constant threat, amygdala develops. Uh, No place for peace, no place for calming. Prefrontal cortex doesn't develop properly. So what if the amygdala does not calm? What if we have these disrupted salient network? What if we have constant threat? What if we have these negative ruminating loops going all the time? What if our amygdala doesn't turn off? What's the problem? Overactive amygdala will activate the sympathetic nervous system what activates the body's immune system. Why? Because the immune system is to our body what the National Guard is to our nation. And the National Guard is to protect our nation from invasion. Your immune system is to protect your body from invasion. Okay, We have two types of immunity. We have our acquired immunity, which is what we exploit when we give a vaccine. You give somebody vaccine, you're giving them dead enemy invader. Give them a polio vaccine, you're giving them... Um, dead polio virus, but your immune system sees that and says, look at all those, all those uh, invaders from the land of polio, and they come into the body still carrying the flag of their nation. We call that an antigen. And your immune system sees that and says, oh, we've got an invasion of the land. We need to send off some troops to basic training and train those guys up as snipers. And we call those antibodies. And if you've had your polio vaccine... Your body saw that, they trained up antibodies, and for the rest of your life, what happens is, if you get a polio, a virus that infects your body, it comes in carrying the flag of the nation, the polio antigen, and your immune system sees that, and those antibodies snipe and kill that virus and leave every other invader alone. You should conceptualize them as snipers, very precise, getting those, those very specially targeted antigens. But imagine you're in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee out on a trail hiking one afternoon, and around the corner, you come around the corner, there's a black bear on the trail in front of you. Five feet in front of you. I promise your alarm's gonna fire. (laughs) And the alarm's gonna say to your immune system, DEFCON 2, prepare for invasion. And if you have to wrestle the bear and you somehow survive, there's going to be claw marks and bite marks and little enemy invaders trying to invade, but, but you don't have time to, to send off troops and train up uh, snipers for the antigens. You don't know who the invaders are yet, so you have another type of immunity, which is your macrophages. And you should conceptualize this as a home invasion, and you've got a sawed-off shotgun under the bed. And you know, with a sawed-off shotgun, when you blast the shotgun, you get... 50 pellets in a wide scatter shot. So you hear the invader over there. You point blast boom, big scatter shot. Just got the invader. Good. What else just got damaged? Your house just got damaged. And in our metaphor, the house is your body. Under chronic, unremitting stress, you're sending a signal to your body, we're under threat, we're under danger. Immune system, kick, kick up. Immune system, gear up. Pr- protect me, protect me. So you uh, kick up your macrophages, which begin releasing inflammatory cytokines. Those are cytokines. interleukin 1, 6, tumor necrosis factor alpha, and others. These cytokines are like the BBs in your shotgun. They will kill the enemy viruses and bacteria. But they also damage the house. They damage Insulin receptors. And you get insulin resistance in the face of elevating glucocorticoids. Steroids that tell your body to pump glucose into your bloodstream because you're in fight-or-flight mode. So you're pumping glucose in, but now you're getting insulin resistant. Also interferes or damages your fire chief. These chronic... Cytokines, the receptor on your hippocampus that tells your 911 operator we've got enough. You lose that, and unless you lose the feedback inhibition, so your hypothalamus calls for more stress hormones. It also interferes with normal synaptic signaling. That's the NE, norepinephrine, 5-HT, serotonin, DA, dopamine. You, You 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 interferes with normal synaptic signaling. So if I took a syringe full of these inflammatory cytokines and just injected you with one syringe full, within a few hours, you're going to start feeling fatigue, malaise, aches and pains, l- nausea, loss of appetite, headache, sleep disturbance, concentration, foggy feeling, can't think it's clear. Those are the neurovegetative symptoms of depression, because when people have depression, they have this cascade going on as well. You may also notice it as the symptoms of a viral infection because when you get a viral infection, you'll get the cytokine inflammatory cascade as your body tries to fight it. So you get fatigue, you get a low-grade fever, you get uh, loss of appetite, you get um, uh, concentration and focus problems. So all of this, though, under chronic stress, you're not actually fighting an infection, you're just chronically stressed, you've got a negative ruminating loop going, your amygdala is firing, it's telling your body, prepare, 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 so you're releasing these inflammatory cytokines. And so you end up with increased rates of diabetes, uh, adult onset type 2 diabetes, obesity, hypercholesterolemia, increased risks of stroke, autoimmune disease problems, bone density problems, all these things happen chronically to people under chronic unremitting stress. So I just described to you how disrupting the normal feedback inhibition of the amygdala, causing a circuitry dysregulation where you lose your uh, salience network feedback and you cause amygdala firing to continue, that that reacts upon the body, increasing inflammatory cascades in the body, which undermine physical health. That now reacts back upon the brain, causing a new cascade of brain changes on a cellular, damaging the cells themselves, and a subcellular inside the cells, altering DNA expression inside the cells. I want to walk you through that. One of the consequences is that it will alter gene expression, where it turns off proteins that are necessary to keep your brain healthy. One of those, an acronym up there, BDNF, BD, brain-derived, brain makes it neurotrophin. Uh, It's a factor, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It's like fertilizer for your neurons. When your neurons have it, they stay healthy. They sprout. You can learn faster. When it's not there, you begin to have neural pruning and shriveling. Uh, Dendritic trees uh, begin to wither, and we end up in depression and other mental health problems. So this is a synapse, and you have a actual micrograph, a picture, a micrograph on the left with the coloring of an astrocyte and you have its uh, drawing of it on the right. On the far on the, on the left panel, on the far left, you will have a presynaptic neuron and then you have that dark area with, uh, around the circle, that's the synaptic space where the neurotransmitters are released in there. All the little tiny circles on the cell to the left are vesicles that contain things like dopamine or norepinephrine or serotonin and when the neuron fires, it's, they merge to the synapse and release their chemical into that dark space where there's a, uh, a signal going on and then you have the postsynaptic neuron. But the green is what I want you to uh, focus on here. That's the astrocyte. That's not a neuron, that's a supporting cell. It's a a glia, it's a white cell, not a a gray cell. And, And what is the job of an astrocyte? If you want to remember what astrocytes do, then think astronaut. Because an astronaut never goes out into space without their space suit. And what's the job of the space suit? to give the astronaut a nice environment or milieu to keep them healthy. That's the job of the astrocyte. It's like the spacesuit for the neurons. It buffers potassium and calcium and makes various neurotrophins and factors to keep the neurons healthy. That's its normal function. Now, this is a busy slide. I want you to start at the very top, and you'll see what looks like a... uh, a, a capillary with little red blood cells, those little red discs are red blood cells, and that's your circulation. And the little blue things would be inflammatory factors like your inflammatory cytokines. And when you're in a highly inflamed state, your white blood cells, macrophages, are releasing these cytokines and they're circulating through the um, circulation. And then there's a cell here called a microglia. The microglia is this blue cell. That's another type of a white supporting cell in the brain. Now, normally, you can see this TRP. It sounds for tryptophan. Anybody heard of tryptophan? It's just an amino acid. You get it in turkey. If anybody had a turkey sandwich for lunch today, and you're nodding off here, a few of you, okay. Um, no, not really. But tryptophan is a precursor to a brain neurotransmitter. Anybody know which one? Serotonin. So, tryptophan in the brain normally gets turned into serotonin, and the microglia will turn tryptophan into serotonin. However, the microglia is also monitoring our circulation, and under this highly inflammatory, inflamed state, The microglia sees those inflammatory cytokines and that causes an epigenetic change. The little factory inside the cell that takes tryptophan, runs it through the little factory and out comes serotonin, that factory assembly line gets turned off and a new gene pathway opens up and now we take tryptophan and we're going to turn tryptophan into something called quinolinic acid. That's the Q-U-I-N there, quinolinic acid. And quinolinic acid is toxic to astroglia. Everybody still with me? Chronic stress, amygdala is firing, macrophages kicked on, inflammatory factors blo- circulating in the blood, microglia alters how tryptophan is being processed into quinolinic acid. Quinolinic acid toxic to astroglia. Astroglia space suit for your astronaut. You're in space. Suddenly your spacesuit is being hit by micrometeors and you're starting to vent atmosphere. You are not a happy astronaut. And so what happens with the uh, damage to the astroglia, we lose our normal trophic support, we are releasing more calcium, it affects the, uh, the uh, various calcium re- uh, channels, and we can have neuronal death, neuronal shriveling, or way down in the corner here, we turn off epigenetically brain-derived neurotrophic factor and hippocampuses begin to shrink, thinning of the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, people end up with mental health problems like depression. This is a functional scan, not a structural scan. You're not looking at structure, you're looking at activity here. Bright areas are cells that are using lots of glucose, firing and metabolizing actively. The dark areas are cells that are not very active. And on the left, you have a person with depression, a brain of somebody with depression. On the right, you have a non-depressed brain. And you can see that in depression, activity is significantly reduced in that brain. So brain changes during depression, we have inflammatory factors that damage the glia that I just walked you through. The glia stop providing the neurotrophins that I just described to you. And we have impaired neuronal genesis, new neuronal growth, new sprouting connections, ability to learn and reprocess. It's diminished under, in this state. We have altered DNA expression, as I mentioned, loss of the neurotrophins, and then impaired prefrontal cortex function and thinning of various brain regions. Now, this is an interesting study. They took over 800 individuals and they followed them for 32 years. I am so glad I did not do that study. (laughs) But this is very interesting. They identified three measures of childhood adversity. Overt physical or sexual abuse, one measure. Severe socioeconomic deprivation, poverty, severe poverty, second measure. Severe neglect. Abandonment, neglect, no attention, third measure. If you had none of those in your childhood, you're represented in the yellow bar. If you had one of those in your childhood, you're represented in the orange bar. If you had two or three of those, you're represented in the gray bar. And then they just followed people over the next 32 years and, to see who actually developed major depression over the next 32 years, how many of them. And the first cluster this is the major depression group. And you'll notice that with none of the adversities, that's actually a little bit off, it's about 10% developed um, major depression. One of those, 20%, two of those, 30%. The far right is a cluster of metabolic problems. That would be adult onset diabetes, obesity, hypercholesterolemia, and you'll you'll notice it's exactly the same, the, the, the percentages, why? Because the pathways of chronic stress activating immune system, kicking up inflammatory factors, causing insulin resistance, are the same pathways that cause those brain changes that lead to depression. Now, what about post-traumatic stress disorder? Why is it that some people get PTSD if they've been traumatized as children, and other people do not? Similar traumas, maybe even from the same home. And what they've identified is it's not just the experience, it's the biology upon which the experience is happening. Meaning that our genes are determining how we react to the environment around us in a great degree. What you see here are three separate genes that have been looked at in three different panels. And if you see this uh, abbreviation down there, SNP, that stands for single nucleotide polymorphism. What it means is, in your genes, genes are coded information. Think of them as words. And so a gene, word, love, L-O-V-E, spells out love. Single polymorphism would be that you've replaced one letter with another letter, and so you've taken out the O and you put in an I, and you've changed love to live. That's a single. Just one single um, character in, the, in, this, in these three genes. And so you can see how you either have, in this particular gene, two Guanine's guanine guanine, tarsine and or the or two of the tarsine. And uh, over here, mild to no, if on the far left of all three panels, if you have mild or no trauma, you have no difference in depression rates. This is depression rates on this, uh, on the y-axis. And you'll see the depression rates are the same regardless of which genes you have. But if you've gone through trauma, on any of these, then you notice they actually begin differentiating. One gene, one set of genes gives you more resilience. You're less likely to have a depression after trauma, where the other gene has significantly more depression after the trauma. And so these are three separate genes with single polymorphisms, one letter replaced, increasing your vulnerability to a negative outcome from the same trauma. And what happens if you had all three of the vulnerable genes and then you got trauma? Then you're even having higher risk for this. This is uh, looking at the short-arm versus long-arm gene that codes for the transporter for serotonin. That's what SS versus SL means. When they first identified this, they noticed that people with the short-arm version of this gene had a much higher rate of depression than people with the long-arm version. They said, oh, here's a gene that codes for depression. But then they discovered that, in fact, this gene does not code for depression. This gene codes for sensitivity to the environment. And so if you have short-arm version of this gene and you were raised in a trauma environment, then you have higher rates of depression. But if you have the short-arm version of this gene and you're raised in a loving, nurturing, supportive environment, you actually have less depression than people with the long-arm version. It gives resilience depending on your environment. So, and this is what this shows, short-arm versus long-arm. The blue bar represents people with no Trauma, the green bar, probable trauma, the red bar, severe trauma in childhood. And then the panel to the left, two long arm versions, panel in the middle, a long and a short, panel in the far right, two short arm versions. And you'll notice if you have trauma, then if you have the short arm version, you have much higher rates of depression. But if you have no trauma, blue, notice, you actually have less depression than those with the long arm version. So this is not actually coding for depression, it's coding for how we respond to our environment. Either very, very sensitively, or we have a little bit more um, insensitivity to, and less responsiveness to our environment. And that's why these have less depression, even though they went through the same trauma, they didn't respond as, sensitiv- as sensitively to it. Now... Childhood trauma, because of what I've just described to you, alters brain development, and what they've done now is they've actually identified in the somatosensory cortex, that's the part of your brain where you feel. So there's cortex that, when you touch with your fingers, there's a part of your brain that corresponds to the tips of your fingers, a part of your brain that corresponds with your lips, okay? There's a part of your brain that corresponds to your genitalia. And women who have been traumatized have thinner cortex that responds to their genitalia, which means that even if they get into a loving relationship later in life, they may not have the same capacity uh, cortically to experience the same pleasure they would have in their marriage relationship had they not been traumatized late, uh, early in their childhood. This is often leads to, can lead to sexual dysfunction uh, for an adult person who has been traumatized sexually as a child. McGill University uh, looked at 24 suicides, 12 with a history of abuse and 12 without, and they identified uh, a particular gene expression that was suppressed in the children who were abused but was not suppressed in the children who were not abused. And this particular gene was critical in how we manage stress. And it may permanently alter, so people who have this gene suppressed react to stress with less resilience and get overwhelmed at a lower threshold than people who weren't abused as, as ch- children to have this gene turned on. 41 Canadian men, 75, 25 with severe abuse and 16 controls, they looked at the DNA in the hippocampal neurons, and they found that there were 362 different epigenetic, epigenetic differences in the neurons in the hippocampi. Some genes were turned on, some genes were turned off, but they were in opposite directions compared to the... Um, the abuse of survivors versus the controls. And what was most significant, they clustered around genes that regulated neuroplasticity. That's the brain's ability to change, to learn, to update. And so trauma victims have their genes turned in such a way that it's harder for them to neuroplastically rewire their brain. They can do it. I've worked with lots of trauma survivors, but you, if you work with trauma survivors, you know that it often takes more effort and longer time before those changes take root than somebody who hasn't gone through trauma because their brains are less pliable or less plastic. It takes longer for the change. Change can still come, just takes more effort. So adults who are abused have higher rates of medical illnesses, higher rates of mental illness, higher rates of suicide, and higher alcohol and drug problems than, than adults who did not go through abuse as child, children. I'm about to show you a video. It's a short video, about three minutes by the Neuroscience Education Institute. And it's kind of just in a very short video, bring together what I just described to you. And remember, HPA stands for hypothalamic pituitary axis, your stress management circuitry. So let's watch this video.
1: Damage done. History haunts me
0: with us. And people who have been traumatized as children carry with them in their biology, in their genetic expression, in their neurobiology, in their brain circuitry, consequences of those experiences. That's the bad news. The good news is that you're really not completely ruined and without hope. There is treatment and the brain remains pliable. And we're going to now go into some things that we can do to help people. Before we do, I want to mention the the fight-flight- or freeze. Have you ever heard of the fight or flight response? That's only two-thirds, and it's important to understand that last third. The actual response when your adrenaline hits is the fight, if you feel, and your assessment very quickly is you have the opportunity of surviving, fighting might be the option, or fleeing, flying and and flight, take flight and run, or freeze. And you'll see this in the animal kingdom all the time, where a hawk flies over and a mouse freezes stops moving. This is important because women who find themselves in a situation where they're being assaulted, sometimes will fight. Some women will fight. Some women will flee and some will freeze. And they just literally freeze. They don't say anything. They don't do anything. They freeze. And then afterwards, what's the statement? Well, you didn't stop me. You didn't say no, you didn't fight, you didn't do anything, therefore you must have wanted it. It's a gross misunderstanding of neurobiology of the adrenaline fight, flight, freeze response. Some of my patients who were in that circumstance, they never told anybody. They told themselves that. Why didn't I fight? Why didn't I scream? Why didn't I yell? Because your body responded with freeze and they felt very guilty and blamed themselves for not taking better action when, in fact, it wasn't a decision, it was a wired-in reflex under severe threat. And I would say to them, you survived, right? On some level, your unconscious mind determined your best likelihood of survival was freezing, and it worked, you survived. You may have been traumatized, but you survived. I don't know what the circumstance was. Had you fought, maybe you wouldn't have survived. Maybe your unconscious mind at that moment said, my best chance of survival is freezing. But unfortunately, without understanding this, many women guilt themselves for years, falsely, for not having fought or tried to run. It's important to help people know that. People who've been traumatized, particularly sexually, but even not sexually, just any type of trauma, particularly childhood, they have altered relationships. They have distortions of male-female relationships, family dynamics, who they can trust, and so forth. If the abuser was a parent or a priest or a teacher, someone in authority that they respected, then they often will have distortions about God. As parents are templates... For God in the home, and their God constructs can be distorted if the abuse comes from someone in that position. Now, what is worse than rape or molestation? What is worse than rape or molestation? Betrayal. When it is done by a parent, or when a parent colludes or fails to intervene to stop when they're informed. You will see, if you do any of this type of counseling, that you will have victims who were molested by, say, a stepfather. And that was traumatizing, no question. But the more severe trauma came when they went to mother and told mother, biologic mom who's been there, and mother either didn't believe them, blamed them, beat them, or worse, took them back and let stepdad do what he wanted. That was much more the betrayal of the mother. Or it could be the betrayal of the father if that was the circumstance. But the betrayal of the, tra- of the person they looked to protect them is much more devastating than the actual act themselves. When, when you deal with people who've been traumatized, they went to mom and they were immediately rescued. And they got treatment and so forth. It's, it's still they have stuff to deal with. But it, it's not as devastating to their internal developing self. So the more serious damage from sexual abuse is typically not done to the body. It's done to the mind. We have power over what we believe, but what we believe has power over us. Meaning we can choose to a great degree, especially as adults, what we believe, But be careful what we choose to believe, because once we believe it, those beliefs exert power over us. The problem with childhood abuse is that many of the beliefs we hold as adults were formed before we actually had the capacity to evaluate accurately what was going on, and we come into adulthood with a whole system of beliefs we've never taken time to reevaluate again. And those beliefs continually exert power over us. So what do victims of abuse believe? I'm worthless. I'm ugly. I'm dirty. I'm nasty. I'm ruined. It's my fault. Life isn't fair. People can't be trusted. And they have lots of self-doubt, increased fear, fear of rejection, fear of getting hurt again, which increases the amygdala firing, which causes more of that negative cascade we've already talked about. So what is the treatment? How do we help somebody? who's been a victim of abuse. Uh, Biopsychosocial spiritual interventions. Biological, of course, everything we can do to deal with any actual physical health problems we want to do. Physical exam, uh, healthy biological routines, so establishing a healthy sleep-wake, healthy diet, low-inflammatory diets, regular physical exercise, avoiding substances of abuse, uh, potentially maybe psychotropic meds that can be helpful. but, But all of that alone will fail to get people well if you only do that. But, but you have to have good, as, as he, best physical health possible, maximizes the likelihood of other inventions being health, helpful. Psychological psychotherapy, and this is the big key. Understand, there are events in life, historical factual events. Somebody was abused on sixth birthday. Uh, Uncle Joe abused. Okay, that's a historical fact. Facts of history can't change. But then there are interpretations and internalizations of facts. What meaning have we derived from those facts? Those things can be changed. Well, that means I'm no good and nobody ever can love me. No, that's not what that means. That fact's still true, but that meaning can be changed. Everybody with me? And that's what you have, that's the kind of focus of the work, I'm gonna give you some examples. First, uh, cognitive therapy and, and how cognitive therapy is effective in helping restore salience network, calm amygdala, bring biological brain changes without any medication. This is a study on individuals uh, with depression compared to controls before and after cognitive therapy. They looked functionally at amygdala activation, that's the panel on the left, and dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex activation, panel on the right. And they put them in a functional scanner, a brain scan, PET scanner. Uh, And they, on the panel on the left, looking at amygdala activation, they gave them a mild stressor while they were in the scanner. And here's the mild stressor. They showed them a picture of an ugly human face, and they said to them, well, that kind of looks like you, doesn't it? That was the stressor. And you'll notice that the, um, the top bar, is that gray on the left? Yeah, gray bar, that grayish, greenish bar, that is your depressed group. It actually stressed them, they're amygdala-fired. The dotted line is your non-depressed group. They laughed like you laughed, that's funny. And then the yellowish bar is the depressed group after cognitive therapy. Normalization of brain function with a truth-based therapy. And then on the right, they had them do a digit span. You see those numbers there next to the panel? They said, take those numbers and put them in order from the highest to the l- lowest, or the lowest to the highest, it didn't matter which way they did it. And, and if you're doing that right now and you're in a functional scanner, we can see activation of your dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, and they can measure that. And you'll see the control group in the dotted line, Not nice, robust activation, very quick. You'll see the depressed group in that grayish line, sluggish, and then the depressed group after cognitive therapy. Again, normalization of brain function with a truth-based therapy. Cognitive therapy, activates dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, reconnects salience network, and sends a calming tone down to amygdala. That's one of the things it does as it identifies, removes, and replaces distorted belief systems or thought patterns with healthier ones. Cognitive therapy alters gene expression. Remember our fire chief we talked about earlier and how the inflammatory cascade damages our fire chief on our hippocampal neurons, and we lose the feedback inhibition. In this particular study, that fire chief specific gene is the FKBP5 gene, that's the gene for our fire chief, and cognitive therapy turns that gene back on. And thus, people who with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder who went through cognitive therapy, they had the same gene expression and uh, re-emergence of their fire chief after the cognitive therapy. That's exciting. That's very exciting stuff. Gives feedback inhibition, stopping that inflammatory cascade. So effective therapies that have been proven in double-blind studies to have effective outcome in trauma victims are, here's three of them. Prolonged exposure therapy, which involves working with trained provider to face the feelings or activities that uh, you've been avoiding and to work through those intense emotions and resolve the trauma memory. So it's uh, called prolonged exposure therapy. Another one is cognitive processing therapy which works with a trained provider and you do a lot of writing and journaling and you assign uh, um, um, uh, and identify your emotions and you identify the triggers and the cognitive distortions and you work with your therapist to replace the distortions with more accurate ones and reprocess with new emotion. And the last is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR. Uh, which basically working with a trained provider while you're talking through and working through your trauma memories, you're simultaneously doing rapid eye movement, moving your eye back and forth, or having your hand go back and forth on your lap like this while you're doing it. And uh, this has also been shown to be very effective. And for whatever reason, on this particular one, I get all kinds of emails from Christian folk, is this really safe to do? Is this, yes, this is safe to do. It's not hypnotism. Okay. What it's doing is your attention on focusing on your eye movement while you're processing allows you to stay in the moment and not get sucked into a trauma dissociative emotion where you you panic and can't process anymore. So with your therapist in the room and you doing either the hand movements or the eye movements, your focus on the eye movements allows you to talk about it without being overwhelmed by re-experiencing the negative emotions from the event. The truth... Truth is needed, and this is what cognitive therapies do. All this is about reprocessing, again, not changing facts of history, but changing how those facts were internalized, because I will tell you, it's always internalized in a distorted, false way, with a false narrative, with false meanings that continue until they're replaced to drive more fear and insecurity and doubt, and oftentimes negative coping strategies that the, the post-trauma person will then look at once they're maybe independent, 19, 20 years of age, they be, may act out in certain ways, uh, perhaps sexually, perhaps with substances, and they look at that and say, yeah, well, they did that to me as a child, but I did this to me. Yeah, well, those, you have to, you have to frame that. Why did you do that? because you were trying to cope with unresolved trauma. You're wounded without healing. This is symptoms of a problem, this is not a problem. But unfortunately, many focus just on the behavior and not the reason for the behavior, and therefore that just adds guilt and they then feel worse about themselves and feel like they're no good and they're hopeless. So we have to remove distortion, stop the negative cascades. When I work with trauma victims, as at some point in the healing process, We have to address their anger, their bitterness, their hate, their rage towards their abuser. And essentially everyone that I've worked with has an ability to forgive. And when we ask them about that, most of the people who've been exploited as children, not all, I've got some uh, this isn't true for, but most, the person who did it got away with it. They were not arrested, they were not prosecuted, they had no real negative consequence. They did it. Maybe the person who was being my my patient told, maybe they didn't. But in their mind, they can't forgive because I'm not going to let them get away with it. I'm going to hold them accountable. And if I forgive, there's no accountability. They just get away with it. And so what truth is needed? The truth that they need is they need to understand the nature of sin itself how sin is not a legal problem that gets you in trouble with an authority that you must remember and hold accountability for and inflict some punishment for or else they get away with it. No, sin breaks God's design for life and health, and it always damages the sinner, always. They never get away with it. And so I give them this analogy. I say, who do you think got damaged? And I use my words very precisely, damaged more. You or your uncle who abused you? Who got damaged more? 100% of my patients so far, say me. I say, okay, let's take that at face value. I say, let's imagine God takes you to heaven right now and he gives you one choice between option A or option B. Option A says, hey, I'm sending you back to earth and you're gonna pick your life up right where I, I just took you from, no changes at all. Option B though, if you choose it, I'll let you trade lives with your uncle. You get to go around molesting kids, but no one will molest you. Whose life do you choose? 100% of my patients choose their own and go, well, if you got damaged worse, why? And a light goes off and they realize that when somebody abuses you, you can be damaged physically, you can be damaged emotionally, you can be damaged psychologically, but your conscience remains clear. Your soul remains unsullied. You still have a pure heart, wounded, but pure. When you actually exploit another like this, you sear your conscience, you harden your heart, you corrupt your character, something much more eternally precious than, than the wounds that we can afflict in, experience at someone else's hands. And the light goes off, so you, you don't have to hold them accountable. They didn't get away with it. Some will go, well, but, but, but they don't seem to be troubled by it. I said, think that through. If you molested a child today, how well would you sleep tonight? Oh, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep. Oh, I don't even know if I could live with that. I, it, would, it would really hurt you, right? So how damaged must you be to be able to molest a child and sleep well at night? See, the fact that they don't seem troubled is not evidence that they're not damaged. It's evidence of extreme damage to them. Does everybody see that? And so that truth sets a lot of people free. You know what? I don't have to hold them accountable. They are paying in their own character, they've damaged themselves, warped themselves. People have distorted self-image, terribly distorted self-image, and you have to help people work through this. And it's a deeply embedded self-image, an image they don't even fully understand. So I use the analogy, of this is a mirror analogy I use. Why don't you imagine a college couple, and they have, They're they're very poor, they don't have a lot of money, so they shop at flea markets, and and they need a mirror for their house, and and they find a mirror that's 25 cents, and it's only 25 cents because the bottom third of it's all water damaged and warped, and it's a full-length mirror, and and so they buy it, and they hang it on the back of their door in their bedroom. Years go by, and they have their first child, and a few more years go by, and that child's two, three years of age, and one day toddles into their bedroom and looks in the mirror and sees this very warped, grotesque, ugly face looking back at them. They go out on the playground they look at all the other beautiful children. They come back in and they look in the mirror and, oh, they are so ugly. They're so gross. And so they go to their 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 bedroom and they get out a, a, a paper bag and, and, and they use their crowns and, and they draw a face as best they can. And, and now when they go out in public, they always have this paper bag on, but people giggle and laugh at them and they know that people are seeing through that bag and they know they're just they're so horrible and ugly. But as as they, as they get a little older, they get better and better and better. And pretty soon, they're able to go out in, in public with their mask on, and most people don't know they're wearing a mask anymore. You all with me here? And they've gotten so good at wearing their mask, and they're so convinced that they're so ugly below that mask, that they never really ever let anyone peek. Someday, though, once in a while, they, they, they might get a really super close friend, or maybe they see a psychiatrist they come to, to trust, and, and they take the mask off. And, and somebody says to them, Man, you, you've got a beautiful face. Here, here's a mirror, and they, and they look into an undistorted mirror for the first time. Do they recognize themselves? Oh, that's beautiful. I wish that were me. That's not me. Now, is the problem here with their face, or is the problem with the image they have in their head about their face? Where's the problem? That's the problem with kids who've been abused. They have an internal image of themselves that is quite warped and distorted. It, the problem is not with them. It's with the image they hold. And so what happens when, when somebody does get a peek under the mask, it's like looking in that mirror. They go, oh, that's beautiful. I wish I'd look like that, but that's not me. And so somebody gets close and goes, you're amazing. I really love you. You're awesome. You are so cool. And they go, oh, that feels good. I like that. I wish it were true, but that's not me. You all know what I'm talking about, don't you? And you have to help them see that their real problem is is the image that they have in their their mind because of the distortion in the mirror. The reality, the mirror is a metaphor for people. People are the mirrors that we look into as children. How does a child know whether they've done something good or not? That's why little kids are constantly, Mommy, look, look at the picture I drew. Daddy, look, no hands, no hands. Because they don't know whether it's good or bad until they get the feedback. They're constantly looking for the feedback to know whether they're good or bad. And then when abuse happens, what do you think that feedback means? I'm not good enough. I'm bad. This wouldn't have happened if I wasn't wasn't, wasn't bad. So very distorted self-image. And then they will file away facts of history in very distorted ways. Facts can't change. We can't change them but we can change how they're filed. So I use the metaphor of a filing cabinet, and you think about opening a filing cabinet, you have these uh, manila uh, folders, and in the folders are pieces of paper. Those pieces of paper are facts of history. Those facts can't change, but where we filed them can. And so Susie, on her sixth birthday, gets molested by her grandfather. Fact of history, that fact will never change. However, where did Susie file that at age six? That got into the file of, I'm gross, I'm ugly, I'm dirty, I'm nasty. That's where that went. I'm bad. Now, you can't change history, but as an adult, you can open that up and go, wait a second. If I walked in today and saw a grandfather molesting his granddaughter, would I think, what a horrible, bad little granddaughter? No, that fact of history got filed wrong. That's how six-year-olds and seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds and children file things. As an adult, I can't change history, but I can go, whoa, that didn't mean that at all. It meant grandfather had troubles. That's what that means. Something's wrong with him, not me. And so I, I say, imagine looking out in the parking lot, and you see a 40-year-old man cursing at a 5-year-old little girl, calling her every foul name you've ever heard. Do you look out there and go, oh, what a horrible little girl? Not for a second. I said, who do you learn about when you observe that? You learn about the man. But what's the little girl walkway feeling like? horrible. And I go to my patient, that's you. You're the little girl. It's so obvious when you stand and observe, but when you're in the middle of it, it's very difficult, especially when you're a child and don't have that resource. Can't change history, but we can reprocess. Then I use the, the cow pasture analogy. This is very powerful for my patients. And what are we doing? All this is reprocessing. This is cognitive reprocessing. We're not changing history. We're reprocessing. Everybody know what a, a cow pasture is? Everybody know what a cow pie is? Imagine walking through a cow pasture and you slip and fall in a cow pie and it slips and it gets right in your face and it's fresh. <laughs> Would that be a gross, disgusting experience? Yeah. Let's say that happened when you were seven years of age. You were running, you slipped, you fell right into, a, you vomit, you go home, you shower, you brush your teeth, you gr- three bottles of Listerine later. Now you're 35, 40 years of age. And when you tell that story, do you always remember how gross and disgusting that was? you always remember it. Does that mean you're a gross, disgusting person today? What? You can go through a gross, disgusting experience and not be a gross, disgusting person? Sexually abused victims don't get that. Men, here's why. The experience of being sexually exploited is gross and disgusting and nauseating and may want to make you vomit if you're in the middle of it. It's just horrible. Those emotions are appropriate to the event. But children attach those emotions to the self. Instead of going like with the cow pasture, now oh, that was a gross experience, and you walk away, boy, I hope I never do that again. Woo, okay, nasty. Okay? No, it gets attached to the self. I'm now gross. I'm now nasty. So imagine this, the person who fell in the cow pasture. They went home, they Listerine, they brushed their teeth, they've showered. But ever since then, no matter where they go, <laughs> they smell manure everywhere. And, and, and they're just convinced everyone else smells it on them too. If they did, do you think they would let people get close to them? People who are abused That gross feeling sticks to them and they feel nasty. They feel gross. Nobody, I can't let people close. If they get close, they'll see how gross I am, how vile I am, how disgusting I am. And so they they never let people close in relationships. They keep them at it, but they crave them, but they can't let them close because they've attached the feelings to the self. And so as I give them this analogy and the light goes on, yes, I can go through something that's horribly gross, yet I'm not gross. Then I give them permission to have the feelings, but they need to detach the feelings from the self and attach them to the event. The event was horrible, always will be horrible, but you're not horrible because of it. That's cognitive reprocessing. Many will have questions about God. Why did God let this happen to me? That will be some long conversations and they're pictures of God. You're going to have to understand how these things work and you're going to have to listen to some stories and then you're going to have to help them reprocess that. So treatment, biopsychosocial, spiritual interventions, having healthy friends, mature friends. I will tell you, a lot of people who've gone through trauma make very bad friendship choices. And this is what our next talk is going to be on. The difference between actual love and codependency. Trauma victims are very vulnerable to codependent relationships and where they continue to uh, associate with people who take advantage of them over and over again. We're going to break that in our next talk. And then spiritual, healthy spirituality, healthy worship. Um, and we, we've talked about some of that in one of our earlier talks. So what disrupts salience Salience network. Denial or believing lies. I went through a whole bunch of lies that trauma victims believe, disrupt salience network. Unresolved guilt, and the unresolved guilt could be it's my fault when it's not my fault. So it's false guilt, not appropriate guilt. Uh, and grudge holding or resentment. We went through that on the, this issue of forgiveness. Guess what? Unresolved trauma contributes to all of these. What reconnects salience network? Truth, cognitive therapy, truth, reprocessing. Repentance or clarifying that there's nothing to repent of if it's false guilt forgiveness, and resolve trauma applies all these. Reprocessing, reconnecting, salience network, bringing truth to bear. So in summary, sexual abuse damages our brain, body, mind, but the damage can be healed, particularly the damage to the mind. And when the mind heals, the brain and body also heal. Thank you. (laughs)